from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, big oil and the new era of climate risk, why climate tech needs patient capital, a conversation with the world's first customer-ending business, and can ESG help crowdfunding? We're passing the hat this week on 350. It's June 4th, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, just back from vacay, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Welcome back, Heather. Hello, Joel. I missed you last week, but I didn't miss working. Uh, you did not. <laughs> lie. You were out and about with your husband having a great, great old time in the eastern U.S. Yes. Uh, but all went well? All went well. I was very botanical. I, I love gardens and old historic homes, and I spent a lot of time in DuPont country last week down in Delaware and uh, saw lots of both. Wait, so connect the dots between DuPont country and botanical gardens. <laughs> well, two of the, uh, the well, it, apparently, aside from being chemical and gunpowder magnets, <laughs> um, the, the DuPont family was very into uh, horticulture and, and growing not just flowers, but uh, crops of all sorts. And so there, there's several gardens that on uh, old DuPont property uh, that uh, my husband and I visited. So Winterthur is one of them, uh, an amazing old um, place. And uh, the Longwood Gardens in Wilmington, which is just absolutely extraordinary. It's just amazing. They have a great fountain show. Um, and, and my husband and I are both just geeks for gardens, if you will. And, and even though it was raining and actually pretty darn cold, it was in the 40s here last week, uh, you know, in, on the East Coast in this area. It uh, was just lovely. So yeah, I had a great time. Lots of peonies in bloom right now. Oh, not uh, potential earnings or no, price no, not share. peony. No, okay. Peony, no, okay. exactly. <laughs> but I know I'm I missed. A, I know I missed a really great show. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing. Uh, it's, I've already been listening to some of the audio, but I look, I'm excited to see some of the videos. I know there were some really great uh, sessions. From Verge Electrify from last Verge week. Electrify, yeah, we had, yeah, we had uh, Sarah Golden on last week in your stead and uh, talked all about it. And uh, it was a great week, but so was this past one. Lots going on. So let's jump into that with the Week in Review. love to start with uh, one of your pieces, actually your piece, your, your essay from from uh, Tuesday this week, since it was a holiday. Joel, on the Shell um, legal decision out of the Netherlands last week that uh, basically says, put up or shut up <laughs> to, to the Shell uh, board and, and management. I'd uh, love to tell me a little bit more about the decision. I have I've been reading a little bit about it, but um, I know I missed a lot of big oil news last week. What's What's behind this one? Well, there was a lot of big oil news, and and what got so much of the of the digital ink uh, mm -hmm. was uh, the Exxon decision, the uh, Exxon shareholder vote, where at least two uh, dissident board members were elected, and there may be a third one coming. We're still they're still counting the votes as you and I are talking today, uh, and then uh, Chevron similarly had the, their own shareholder 
event where there was a, a, a lot of concern about climate and a vote that did not go the way the company would have liked. But the big story for, for me was the court decision in the Netherlands around Shell. So there's a three-judge panel in the Netherlands ordered Shell to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by 45% compared to 2019 levels uh, by the end of the decade. Wow. So that's pretty ambitious, more <laughs> so. They, they were going, I think, for 2013 or mm -hmm. 2016 mm -hmm. levels uh, at, at a much smaller percentage reduction. It, it moves the company much further faster. And it, what's significant about this is uh, for the first time in history, a court has ordered a private company to curb its planet warming pollution, which is to say that the fate of companies' uh, climate ambitions may now be much more in the in the hands of judges and juries mm -hmm. than the you know activists and shareholders even. So this was a big deal, and and it, yes, it only it took it affected Shell in the Netherlands, although uh, it affects their global scope three emissions, which I think most listeners know are the not just the emissions uh, one and two that they. Uh, themselves create in the process of delivering their products and services, but the emissions created by their customers in using their products. So this was a big deal because it, it, it doesn't just affect oil companies potentially. As more and more uh, uh, shareholders and activists and concerned citizens take companies to court over climate change, um, this could start to affect a lot of different industries, particularly the so-called hard-to-abate industries, airlines, steel, cement, chemical, and, and some others. Uh, this has a, a lot of potential to change the game, not just for fossil fuels, but for business and climate change. Is there any appeal or recourse? I mean, like, are we going to see a, you know some, some more on this? Is this the final word or, or you know, is there going to be... A fight back from from the company. Well, so Shell has said they're going to appeal, mm -hmm. and that could take years. But the judge said that the ruling is immediately enforceable. <laughs> so this is not one of those situations as companies are want to do, where they can, uh, you know, litigate their way into oblivion, where this could take years or in some cases decades before it finally gets settled. I mean, it could, but in the meantime, Shell has to deliver what the judge has ordered it to deliver. So I, I just I just think this is a uh, watershed moment. And, and not to, to minimize uh, what happened at Exxon, because that was a, a very big deal. Tom Friedman had a great piece this week in the New York Times about the, the mean greens that, that environmentalists <laughs> need to be less nice and more mean yeah. uh, when they start to deal with some of these issues. And you know what? I'm, I, I, I always try to get up most days on the nice side of the bed, although a couple days I'll roll off over the mean side. <laughs> but I think he's absolutely right that, that the desperate times call for desperate measures and playing the nice skies uh, is no longer an option. And so taking, suing people, suing companies, taking them to court. Oh, and by the way, this wasn't the only landmark climate decision in a court last week. An Australian court ruled that the government must ensure that children aren't adversely affected by any decisions to approve coal projects. It found that the environment minister 
you know, needed to avoid actions that would cause further harm to younger people or presumably the unborn. So, you know, this is another uh, whole piece of the legislative puzzle because there's been these intergenerational lawsuits going on for a number of years, including here in the United States, claiming that climate change is stealing the future of, of young people and the unborn. So it's unclear whether these cases will then energize uh, those rulings or, or exactly what the impact will be. But I believe there will be some impacts. Uh, you know, not to to completely belabor this one, but I, I'm just wondering whether this, this will cause companies to think about changing their headquarters sites or going to places where that are more fossil friendly, if you will. I mean, I'm, uh, I hope that's not the case, but do you think that that's also a, a concern? Like what could could Shell just bail on the Netherlands and leave the country and <laughs> change where it's based? I mean, I suppose. I mean, Shell is actually dual headquartered in, in, in London, London yeah. and, mm-hmm. and The Hague. I guess that's a, an opportunity for them. Uh, but it's, first of all, extremely costly. Yeah. Second of all, you, you know, you can run, but you can't hide. Uh, <laughs> these, these are companies that are, that are doing business in every country in the world, pretty much. And... Uh, you know, any one of those countries could file a lawsuit and, and any one of those countries, you know, particularly the bigger ones, if the EU were to take this on or the US or, or, or China or Japan or, or Germany, any other number of other large economies, it could have the same effect. In fact, you know, if you think about it, the, the Dutch is, you know, Netherlands is, is a pretty small little country, uh, uh, tiny economy relative to, you know, most of Europe and certainly uh, uh, the U.S. So it, it's not, it happens to be where they're co-located, but it, it doesn't necessarily stand. I mean, it, the Netherlands is, has been well documented as a low-lying uh, ge- geographic area will face some really s- severe uh, impacts of rising sea levels. And so they have standing, clearly. But any country could do this. Yeah. Well, let's move on to another topic that's uh, right up your alley <laughs> is uh, our climate tech maven here at GreenBiz. And this is a piece by David Kenny, who's president and executive director of Virtual Lab, uh, that's, that says, we need more patient capital behind climate tech startups. So uh, talk a little bit about what's going on here. And for those who don't know, what is patient capital? <laughs> well, so I will beg to differ with you on one thing. I'm not the climate tech maven. There are many of us, and, and and rightly so, because this is such an important topic. And and you know, climate tech is just sort of the technological movement of the time right now. And and it's it's got so many broad implications that all of us here are becoming climate tech experts, including you, Mr. Joel. Um, but uh, on this particular piece, I, the thing that struck me is just how much needs to happen at the early stage. There's so much great stuff happening in labs right now, but there hasn't been so much of a focus on the patient capital. So patient being capital that can wait (laughs) for the returns. And as we know, the Silicon Valley model has been uh, less than patient with clean tech. Um, That was one of the things that, that led to the, to, to the bus. I mean, there were many factors there, but, but, um, this thesis in this particular piece really just focuses on the fact that we need to spend more time looking at the early stage in the from the lab into the early pilots and really getting getting a sense of 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 uh, where we need to focus our attention. This is this is something I was when I was listening to the Electrify uh, 
audio. Um, Jigger Shaw was talking about this, um, and it's it's actually one of the clips I picked out for later. We'll get to that in, in a little while. But but um, you know, it's just really the fact that that companies like uh, Breakthrough Energy, which is is the Bill Gates. And, and many other billionaires back ventures, but the, the incubators, um, things like uh, the engine at, at MIT and, and others, they're looking at, at returns for t- from 12 to 18 years, right? So they're not expecting um, things to pay off within two or three years or even five years. Um, and we need to we need to have more patience. I mean, that's and that's really, I think, something that anyone, not just the venture capital world, but also the big corporations that have all these funding arms, they, they need to realize that they're going to have to to sit on this for a while. Well, I would hope that the venture capital community learned a few lessons from the first round 1.0 of clean tech and climate tech back in early 2000s, because they were hot off the dot-com era, which itself wasn't necessarily a screaming success, although it did get the internet going. Uh, but you know, they were looking for, you know, one, two, three, five year returns uh, on on very large capital intensive projects. And and it didn't happen. And so they lost lots and lots and lots of money. I was part of one of the venture funds that was going to make me very, very rich. And of course, I had to keep <laughs> my day job. Um, but um, uh, that's Thank God. the way it goes. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it all worked out. Um, but I think that's the one one of the lessons here, and and it you know the, the tendency is still to go back to you know the VC model, which is you know buy it, flip it, you know, and and you know take the take the money and run. But I think realizing that the the stakes are higher, but also the need these are not software plays; these are significant investments that take time to build facilities, build markets, build cash flow. And, and so I think it's be really interesting to see how these things play out. Uh, and, and it's a great, the whole idea of patient capital is just way over. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and actually just to one more thing, point on this, and I think it's going to be just a lot of different ranges of times, right? Because there is actually software involved here. Lots of the ton of tools coming out in the enterprise software realm for carbon accounting and for risk assessment and, and some really great enterprise software tools that could be on the earlier side of the range. But yeah, a lot of these things are very capital intensive. So wonderful, wonderful area. And we are all experts, or we will be, <laughs> hopefully soon. So yeah. Well, let's move over to a third story that Lauren Phipps, our director and senior analyst in circular economy, and chair of uh, this month's uh, Circularity 21 conference, uh, did an interview with a guy called Joe McLeod, who is uh, an end-of-life expert. And no, he's not in the funeral business or hospice care or anything <laughs> of the sort. He is a designer, a product designer, who looks at uh, the how what happens to his products at the end of life and starts designing back from there. He's written a book called Ends, E-N-D-S, about the history of consumerism through the lens of death. It's an uplifting <laughs> saga, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, but I think it's what's really interesting here, it, it, it's another one of these things that is so logical, makes so much sense. Why aren't more companies thinking about what happens uh, to their stuff and you know the end of life and the next life and the next life after that 
which is, of course, one aspect of what circular economy is all about. The fact that there's a designer thinking about this stuff from the get-go is really interesting. And you know, and I have to say, a lot of this is far, far from rocket science. When he talks about uh, one of the examples that he loves, it's basically a bottle bill. He, he talks about Sweden. They have a, it's, a, it's a basically a bottle bill, what we would call here in the States, where you pay a small deposit, where you, you know, buy a bottle, and that's the customer relationship you have. And then there's an agreement between the customer and the consumer and the provider that that mechanism is a way that keeps them connected. Uh, you know, that's something that's available in, I don't know, a dozen or 15 states in the United States. Um, been lots and lots of efforts to um, make it national because where those bills exist, the recycling rates are higher, but they've been fought by the big beverage companies, uh, which is a whole other story. But anyway, what did you take away from this interview? Well, so, yeah, there, there are two big things for me. One is this sort of the, the design principle in the first place, because there's two parts to this, right? There's the product itself and 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 how it's designed and is it easy to take apart? And can you get at the materials that are valuable in a, in a way that, that lets them you know, go to the places they need to get and the the metal goes here and the plastic goes here and that so forth. So that sort of thing. The other part is is the the take back experience and that and how that's designed and how that feels to the consumer. And you know, I, I was thinking about this as I was um preparing for the podcast and there's a company called Nimble that does a lot of uh uh cell phone accessories. So mobile phone accessories, they do wireless chargers and and, and all sorts of other things. And they make them out of PS materials that have been recycled from elsewhere. They're all, they're all uh, reused materials. But one of the things that's really cool is when you buy the product, they're in the box, there's um, the, the, the stuff to send it back. And immediately, so immediately when you get the product, you know how to, if you, you choose to end of life it at some point, how to, how to dispose of it, how to get it back to where it can be handled in a proper way. Um, or whatever else you have to be to be sent back. And I think that's one of the main things in this piece that really struck me was that how how poorly the take back and, and experience is right now on so many things. It's not just, you know, I mean, people are totally befuddled. Like, how do how do I do this? And more people want to do this. So part of the the thing here, I think, is is how companies really approach that that part of the equation and and, and move forward on that. So the consumer experience has to include that part of it. Yeah, and we always end up putting the burden on the consumer to do the right thing. And of course, that's a, a long shot at best. But the other, the other piece about this that is interesting, and this is, you know, again, coming from a designer, is the importance at stor of storytelling, uh, whether it's in the product itself or through videos or games or books or other ways, that, that this is the way we can share and this vision of of circular products and materials and and that we and, and what we should all be doing as we as we use products and you use them up or find that they no longer are needed or wanted or useful and i think that's another piece of this is that we you know we, we always you know go for the build a better mouse trap and and better mouse traps are great but if you don't understand how that mouse trap works or why it's better or what to do with it at the end. Um, I'm trying to come up with a cheese line here, but it's going to be too way too cheesy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> anyway, it's it, it's all for naught.
So Heather, as you are so great at doing, you've pulled a couple of clips from our most recent event, last week's Verge Electrify 21. Uh, what do you got for us? Yeah, so I'm catching up. And uh, one of the first things I did do was was go to the Jigger Shaw uh, interview that we did with uh, Katie Fehrenbacher did. Um, Jigger Shaw, as as I hope you all know, left the public uh, left the private sector and went over now to head up the loan program office for the Department of Energy. And so we're going to feature two clips back to back. Uh, his take on the most exciting investment areas that could be affected by the loan program, and then how that pertains to and relates to the environmental justice focus that the Biden administration has right now. And um, so here's Jigger Shaw. You know, what I'm excited about is areas where we have movement, right? And so where we have at least $2 billion of applications that have an interest is in the areas we talked about, right? Transmission, offshore wind, um, green hydrogen, but then also in carbon sequestration and storage, biofuels. We're starting to get a lot of interest in uh, virtual power plants. And so this is about financing appliances for energy justice uh, communities and energy justice families, and then really you know, putting those appliances together into demand flexibility under for quarter 2022. We're starting to get a lot of interest in the traditional advanced technology vehicle manufacturing program uh, areas. So whether it's new electric vehicle manufacturers or uh, there's five or so battery manufacturing uh, folks who've come in um, and then all the critical minerals uh, that feed that, right? So folks who are mining for lithium or nickel or cobalt or things like that in the US and then recycling, right? So that's just another version of critical minerals for us. Um, and then we've got the tribal energy program. So we have $2 billion for the tribal energy program. And we've been able to kickstart that program as well, which has been fantastic. The loan programs office, as you can imagine, hasn't really been very responsive to uh, justice communities, not because it's intentional, but more because we were focused on billion dollar projects or $12 billion projects with the Bodo nuclear plant. And so I think what we've done is really take a hard look at what our our capabilities are. And this virtual power plant is where we found the most interest from the marketplace. And so whether it's residential solar developers who want to go down to uh, 550 FICO score or lower, um, or whether it's municipalities who've said, hey, you know, we are tired of people charging 30% interest to many of our low moderate income consumers who want to buy appliances and we'd like a better option, or electric utility companies who've been testing lots of different approaches like pays um, or some of the other sort of like on-bill financing mechanisms. And they really want to expand it greatly. Um, we've been looking at how to support all of those things and with an eye towards demand dexterity, right? I mean, because that's really what's being compensated under for quarter 2022. And really, I think what it leads to is the only idea that anyone's come up with nationwide that actually reduces electricity rates. I mean, that's the real promise, right, is not only are you getting um, essential appliances affordably into the hands of the people who need them, but you're also actually able to get higher utilization rates out of the existing transmission distribution infrastructure. That's what the LA100 studies show that LWP paid for with NREL. And, you know, and, and so if we can get affordable appliances into the hands of uh, those who need it and enable an entire demand dexterity movement that reduces electricity rates for everybody. It feels like a win-win all the way around. The other main stage session that I went to right away was one on cities and how cities are playing a role in the electrification movement. 
and a terrific conversation with Libby Schaff, the mayor of Oakland in your town, your hometown, Joel, and Deborah Smith, the CEO and general manager of Seattle City Light. Here, both of them address how to inspire consumers and businesses and convince them to embrace electrification. It's not all about beating them overhead. It's uh, over the heads. It's it's about inspiring and um, and teaching them how to embrace these these benefits. And so here is Libby Schaff and Deborah Smith. We started by trying to incentivize the switch over from gas to electric before we made it mandatory. And it's true, people were freaked out a little bit at first when we said, please pass on the gas. Um, And especially chefs, restaurants, like our tourism industry. And what I have loved is engaging some celebrity chefs, some YouTube influencers to do cooking demonstrations. And there's like an awesome one from a super popular restaurant called Reams. And you can see the chef have a little bit of trepidation. Like, is this really going to char my pepper the way that an open flame would? Uh, And then you can see she's pleasantly surprised. It actually chars it just fine. Her ability to control the temperature in real time. uh, and, And the real test was when she put her pocket bread uh, on on her griddle and it puffed up perfectly with the perfect golden crispness. And then she looked down and her little son was there and she said, and wow, this is so much safer uh, for my child that there's not an open flame in the kitchen. Uh, I know a lot of cities are looking to lend induction um, cooktops so people can start trying this out, get used to the magic of induction cooking. So this is just one fun way that we are really getting people excited and bringing them along. The other thing I cannot stress enough, because this came as a big surprise to me, and we need to spread this word. Having gas cooking in your home is bad for your family's health. The increased risk of asthma um, infections and and hospitalizations is huge. And so this is really a way to say, I love you to your family, to keep everyone safe by not only saving the planet, but reducing the pollutive gases from the the gas cooking in actual homes. So win-win. Unfortunately, in Washington state, we don't have the ability to provide incentives for fuel switching. Um, It's a constitutional thing and it gets in our way. We can do so now, thankfully, for transportation electrification. But on the business side and on 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 the building side, we really are in a place of having conversations, again, partnering, collaborating, and reaching out to say, how can we help and how can we make this transition work for you? We are hopeful that over the next couple of years, we may in fact gain that authority uh, out of Olympia. But for right now, uh, we're relying on other means. We don't have shareholders. Uh, We are a municipal utility. So we really do take all of our signals from our customers. We work with them to understand what they want. The city listens to them in the same way. So it's fairly transparent from the city level to the utility, which is super helpful and I think really benefits our customer owners. Uh, We've been working a lot with uh, the public sector partners. Seattle is a commuter city, but it is a public transportation city. So we are really focused and see big opportunities with respect to the ferry system, metro. Uh, We are working with one of our, well, we're working with our, our utility partners in the area so that we can 
plan mindfully together as the, the Puget Sound area in whole for decarbonization over time. Um, and we're working and building key partnerships with folks that will in, in turn help us sell the benefit of, of what we're doing. So for instance, the University of Washington, which is our largest customer, and they have a very, very strong environmental ethic. And even um, we are going to be home for one of the NHL's newest teams, the, the Kraken here in Seattle. And so we've had the opportunity to work closely with the folks building that arena, climate change arena. And so every time someone walks into that facility to watch a game, to participate in a concert or another community event, they will be reinforced the, the value of a carbon-free future for our community and for our families and for our, our kids and grandkids. We also meet really regularly with the business community, especially the commercial real estate group. We've been talking for a while about how ESG data can help large companies float bonds at attractive rates or maybe get a better rate on a loan or line of credit. But can ESG also help startups raise money? That's a question recently asked by Jian Hyde, CEO and founder of Communique, a London-based communications consultancy focusing on ESG issues. She recently studied nine companies raising money through crowdsourcing and found some interesting results. And she joins me now from London to talk about her research. Hi, Jihan. Hi. So first of all, what spurred this study in the first place? Well, actually, there's two reasons why I've decided to conduct this study with my team. The first one was I needed data. I needed data to help me convince and, and explain the importance of communicating ESG in the right way and holistically rather than in the, in, uh, interdependently. The second reason is I wanted to help my fellow communication experts on having a go-to report that would have examples of best case studies, best ways of communicating ESG, and, and what are the mistakes that we need to avoid? Because as you know, this is a new, this is a new uh, type of communication for us. We haven't been doing it for a while in the way that we should be doing it, we should be communicating it. Hence why I've decided to uh, run this research with me and my visiting uh, researcher. Her name is uh, Paige Pope. Mm -hmm. So you did a content analysis study. Talk, talk a little bit about what's involved there. Okay. So what we looked at, we wanted to focus on crowdfunding. And the reason we wanted to do so is because we realized as an industry and a sector, crowdfunding is extremely growing. So if we look at what it's worth in 2019, it was actually worth $14.2 billion. And it's estimated to be worth in 2025 by $28.8 billion. We also wanted to look at the startups that are crowdfunding and who were crowdfunding last year and this year. We wanted to understand the ones who did succeed, why did they succeed? What did they do right? And the ones who didn't, why did they not do so? And what were the mistakes that they have done? So we looked at their tone of voice, that we've looked at their messaging, we looked at the imagery used when they were pitching, 
We also looked at their sentiment and the type of channels that they've used to communicate ESG when they were pitching their campaigns. We found that the most successful ones were nine, and we were very fortunate that these nine represented various sectors. They were, we had some from education, we had ones from lifestyle, renewable energy, farming, agriculture. So they were from various sectors. And what was really prevalent is that the reason they succeeded is that is because they really focused on four themes. These themes included sustainability, ethics, innovation, and disruption. And before I forget, we focused on three crowdfunding platforms. They are Cedars, Crowdcube, and Start Engine. The reason we did so is because these three engines or three platforms were the most transparent ones. They're the ones that allowed us to really dig deep in the type of pitches and the type of documentations that was submitted. They were also the ones who are really putting sustainability at the forefront and specifically ESG at the forefront. For example, Cedars have said that 96% of the companies who put ESG at the forefront of their campaigns all exceeded their fund funding rounds. And to us, that was really interesting. I was interested in some of the companies that you picked. I mean, a, a lot of our listeners know TerraCycle, for example. They, based in New Jersey, they work with brands and communities to recycle previously unrecyclable materials, things like juice boxes and cigarette butts. But Career Masterclass, that's an e-learning platform around uh, you know helping pr- practical guidance from successful industry leaders. How would they use sustainability or ESG in raising money? So that's, I'm glad you've asked this question because Career Masterclass, what they really focused on is their social and their governance part of the ESG. And the way they did so is by focusing. So if you've noticed in, in, their, in their content, they didn't really focus on, oh yes, we are a career, we are a career uh, development, development uh, uh, um, platform or that we are a self-development pr- uh, platform. Instead, what they did focus on is the fact that who are they helping And what they said is that they're helping the underprivileged uh, females and underrepresented communities. So that's from the S. What they did with the G is that they highlighted who their investors are. They've also conducted a live Q&A with the founder so that investors can actually come in or even potential investors can come in and ask the questions before they invest. And if you look at what they've asked for, and this is interesting as well, Career Masterclass asked for 200,000 and instead they got 400,000. And that's how they succeeded. So you, you said earlier that one of the things you're hoping to do is to help startups avoid some of the mistakes. What are those mistakes and, and how, how do you avoid them? So the mistakes, for example, that one company called Medex have done is that they used unoriginal imageries. So they were not really 
their staff. So they, they've done a film to highlight why they're fundraising, but they didn't actually give us any, any sense of who the staff are, who, who is the human people, who, who are the people behind medics, for example. If you look at the language used, it was, it's very medical. It's very difficult for me as someone who's interested in, in, in helping the planet and becoming and become part of the journey to understand what role would I play as Jihan. And if you also look at their, Im not imagery, but their content as well, it lacks, it lacks storytelling. And that's one some of the mistakes that they have done. Yeah. So what's the big takeaway here for startups who want to raise money uh, on, the, on the internet via crowdsourcing? The biggest takeaways are the following. Do not underestimate the importance of storytelling when you are pitching. Because people buy people. And when you are telling a story, be genuine. Tell why you founded your company. Tell us why you founded it. Tell us where is the funds going? How are you going to spend it? Where are you going to spend it? And even better, tell us what role are we going to play as your investors in this, is in this fund round? And also explain to us your vision. Don't tell us what you have just done or where, where you're spending it, but also tell us the outcome of your expenditure. And that's why the likes of Mama Wata, um, Career Masterclass, uh, Procurio, Central Plain Group have all succeeded in raising an average of 230% more than what they've asked for. Hmm. It sounds like uh, advice I've been giving for a long time, which is that the best pitches are stories and the best stories are personal stories. So I think we're pretty much aligned on that finding. Uh, well, that's really interesting work. I really appreciate uh, hearing about it. Jihan Haidt is CEO and founder of Communique based in London. You can find out more about her and her firm's work at communique.global. Thanks, Jihan. Thank you. close out the episode, I invite you to hear from three more individuals from the sixth annual GreenBiz 30 Under 30 list, highlighting a rising young cohort of intrepid startup founders, tenacious corporate innovators, and determined public servants. You can meet all of these inspiring young professionals by reading the report at greenbiz.com. But this week, listen up for perspectives from Jamario Jackson, Senior Community Planner of the Mobility Advocacy Organization, Transform, Marta Mislikka, Sustainability Manager with Lithuanian energy company, Ignitus Group, and Sripriya Navalpakam, Sustainability Manager for North America with Unilever. Enjoy. Hello, my name is Jamario Jackson. I'm a Senior Community Planner at Transform. I work on partnerships and projects in East Oakland. For me, there's a, there's a strong relationship between environmental justice and urban planning. It's first off recognizing the racial history between both, both urban planning and environmental justice. Sometimes I often see environmental justice as like a 
sort of like a movement within something larger like urban planning, for example, environmental justice is very interdisciplinary and it intersects with a number of different issues. And too often, and also historically, environmental justice is seen as protecting um, open land and spaces and animals. And only more recently has it focused on the protections of people, right? Our air quality is important. Our water quality is important, but it's not just important because um, we don't want to pollute the, the oceans and our, our, our built environment, but we don't want to pollute our bodies. Hi, my name is Marta Misleitita. I'm a sustainability manager at Ignitus Group, one of the largest energy companies in the Baltic region. For me, how I'll know that I'm really successful is, or that I've reached my, I fulfilled my mission kind of, is when any boardroom that I might enter, that they would not question why we should be sustainable and why sustainability matters, but they would just consider it business as usual. And just, it would just not be a topic of discussion <laughs> at all. It would be more about the how and not about the what, and especially not whether we should do this. Um, so I think that's really like, if I have to kind of set a KPI for myself, so I would say 100% of boardrooms across Lithuania <laughs> say that, <laughs> that, um, they, they don't, that sustainability is just business as usual. So um, that would probably be um, be kind of something that I would feel like, wow, that's really that's really a major transformation. My name is Tripriya Navalpakam. I am a sustainability manager at Unilever, uh, focusing on our North America business. You know, I think there's this misconception that you need to be a, a scientist or you need to have a degree in in, in in environmental science to be able to to really use your role and your job at your company to make progress on environmental and social issues, right? And I, I think that's a really bad misconception. I think that the the world is changing and I think there's lots of opportunities for people to do what I did, which is leverage your experience in business uh, whether it's from a sales standpoint, from a procurement standpoint, from an R&D lens, and find ways to really build in um, your company's sustainability commitments into your role and your job. Um, you don't have to do what I did, which is literally transfer to the sustainability team, but um, I think there's a really great opportunity for people to really integrate um, their company's commitments into their day jobs and find really unique ways to do that to really help drive value for their business, drive growth, and also contribute to those external commitments. That's what I'd really like to, I guess, see change over the next um, few years in the industry. More like who is working on this stuff and who's really helped driving it. I think we need more people um, and more collective action to really be able to get where we need to go as a society. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organizations, stories, and events we've mentioned. 
While you're on the site, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish seven every week. Go to greenbiz.com newsletters and you'll learn more about them. We love to hear from you, your comments, your questions, your tips. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.